You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Welcome to Rise Report series of the Radically Pragmatic podcast. I'm Curtis Valentine, co-director of PPI's Reinventing America Schools Project. I'm coming to you today from Austin, Texas and the South by Southwest EDU. South by Southwest EDU is an annual event fostering innovation and learning within the education industry. South by Southwest EDU brings together the learner, the practitioner, the entrepreneur, and the visionary to share groundbreaking stories, tackle complex issues, and build reimagined paths forward. Our special South by Southwest EDU series is called The Future of Teaching. Our series is an opportunity to discuss the post-pandemic landscape of teaching in America. The Future of Teaching series is in collaboration with The 74, the premier news outlet covering education in America, driving an honest, fact-based conversation about how to give America's 74 million children the education they deserve. My guest today is Tequila Browning, the president of TNTP. We'll be talking about disrupting racial inequities in K-12 schools today. Uh, Welcome to today's podcast, Tequila. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. We're here in, in Austin. How are you enjoying South by Southwest EDU so far? South by has been a great experience so far. It's been really engaging just to be just be in fellowship and be in company with you know fellow educators that that are in the work, and it's been inspiring to hear and see in the programming, sort of both us reflecting on lessons learned from the pandemic, but also acknowledging that the problems that that we're facing and that particularly Black and Brown students are facing didn't start with the pandemic. And so it's been exacerbated. So sort of that recognition that it didn't start there, it's exacerbated. But in crisis, there is opportunity. We heard Secretary Cardona mention that, you know, in his keynote this morning. And that's absolutely the place that I come from. So let's start off with what is TNTP and how did you come to lead the organization? Sure. So TNTP is a national nonprofit. We were actually founded in 1997 by teachers. And at that point, our focus was to really address the fact that there was a shortage of teachers, especially diverse teachers and effective teachers across the country. So those were our beginnings to train teachers, not, and not, not exactly where it was like college students only doing a two-year you know, fellowship or something, but actual career changers. So this was a pipeline program for people that wanted to transition from other careers into teaching. From there, we realized quickly that, oh, that one thing won't help. (laughs) I mean, won't solve it, right? It would help, but it wouldn't solve it. And so we expanded our work, you know, during the course of our evolution to then support districts and everything from talent and HR practices, academics, professional development, 
community engagement, policy and advocacy. And so today we are, you know, basically a consulting or national nonprofit consulting organization. We have about 800 full and part-time staff. We work all over the country. I mean, last year we worked with over 300 districts in just about every state and, and including in Puerto Rico. And our efforts are really focused on disrupting educational inequities. And so what I love about TNTP and in my journey, I was actually a former client. I used to lead um, teacher talent, so basically all the talent and development and support work for teachers in what was Memphis City Schools. I was in Memphis for about 10 years, and we actually partnered with TNTP when I was in Memphis to help us with our teacher shortage. When I took over the work, at that point, Memphis got, we used to get fined for not having enough, you know, effective, qualified teachers, and TNTP really helped us, you know, shore up that gap. And I've been at TNTP now for nine years in different roles and serving in different capacities, um, and just became the CEO as of January. Congratulations. Thank uh, you. And it's been all over the internet. You know, folks are so proud of you making history, as you said, the first black woman to lead the organization. Uh, that, that's incredible. Um, so you came to South by Southwest as a speaker. Um, and so you are here discussing, you know, disrupting racial inequities in K-12 education. Uh, so in your, in, in your experience, what racial inequities exist now and what role do teachers play? So, so I think, so I come from a place of acknowledging first and foremost that education in our broader nation's well-being um, have been closely intertwined throughout our history. And if you look at where we are now as a country, I start with looking at the racial wealth gap. The racial wealth gap is real. It's growing and it's, it's pervasive. And education, which is supposed to be the great equalizer, right? It is not that, especially for black and brown kids and for kids in poverty. And so my mission and my passion in life is to actually make that be true, to disrupt that where education is, in fact, the great equalizer. Right now, I would say the role that education and teaching plays, we've been focused on this notion of you know, college and career readiness, where it almost pretends there's one path or one track towards kids in their pathway to economic and social mobility and that being college. I am not saying at all that college is not a pathway for kids. It should absolutely be, but it is not the only pathway, especially when we look towards the future and we understand the future of work. And my question is, how do we make sure that not only our kids can access jobs today, but access jobs of the future? And not just low-wage jobs, but the jobs that are actually going to get them on a path for economic and social mobility. If you look at the data, one of the things that, that's really alarming is that, I don't know if you know, almost half, about 43% of all black workers in our country work for under $30,000. Wow. That's poverty. They are working for poverty. The median wage is 42,000, so that's not wonderful, but it's even worse, right, for, for black Americans. And I, and I believe wholeheartedly that what, has, what is contributing to that is the fact that education is not delivering on its promise of being the great equalizer. Here, here at South By, we hear the word disruption a lot. It's a catchphrase uh, for people doing the work. You know, I'm, all, I'm always asking, so what does that mean to you? Like, let's just sort of like, let's visualize it, paint that picture. Um, when someone asks you, what does disruption look like? 
uh, what, what would you say and how does that disruption impact teachers? So if you're talking to teachers, you're saying, I'm hearing this disruption, but what does that mean to me? What does that look like? So what disruption means for me is the fact that, you know, there's a saying that wealth begets wealth. Well, poverty begets poverty. So for me, disruption is to break up those systemic cycles and, and practices and policies that actually perpetuate that system. I grew up in the Delta in the Deep South, the Mississippi Delta in, in rural Arkansas. I grew up, I lived in a house until I was 12 years old that didn't even have indoor plumbing. Mm. And I chopped cotton as a child. I'm not 100 <laughs> years old, but like that was poverty in the, in the Delta, in the Deep South. I was able to have a very strong public school experience. I went to Yale undergrad, went on, got my graduate degrees, and you know, today sit the first black woman, you know, first black and first black woman CEO of a very, you know, premier, you know, education organization. Disruption was that. I mean, my, I was raised by my grandparents who were sharecroppers in, in the Delta. And so my grandparents knew that education was going to be my way out of poverty. And so they supported that. And fortunately, it delivered for me. That's not true for millions of black and brown and poor kids. If you trace the numbers and look at it, basically about nine out of every 100 black kids in America graduate from college. That means that 91 are going right back and, you know, assuming they're not on a path. Right now, our proxy for red for success is this notion of college and career readiness. That's what we paint as our destination. And so we measure to that, we set goals to that. That, that can't be our destination. For, so disruption means, number one, killing that, right? Scratching that and acknowledging that our true destination must be economic and social mobility for kids, not just this arbitrary and ambiguous readiness that doesn't really translate to anything meaningful for kids in the long run. Yeah, I mean, when you hear the numbers, I mean, I think speaking in sort of generality, but when you start hearing nine out of 91, you know, the, the 30 some odd thousand, it really paints a stark picture. Um, I wanna talk about TNTP. Um, so what, to those who are listening in and, you know, our listeners, some, some are going to hear about it for the first time, some have been looking at your work for, for 25 years, uh, what differentiates TNTP from others doing similar work? It's a great question. I would say a couple things. One is, so, so I, my background, I was a school social worker, then worked in central office for a while, you know, in leading research and then talent, but, you know, have a, you know, 20 plus year career in education. When I decided to leave the district, I knew I didn't want to just go to a think tank, right? You know, do research and publish and just, you know, put it on a shelf. TNTP is made up, our, our, we have great talent. The 800 folks that we have with the organization are practitioners, right? They are teachers, principals, educators, the like. Um, we combine that though with our, I would say a more comprehensive approach. Not only do we know that no one silver bullet is going to help us fix education, so we're not chasing that proverbial silver bullet as an organization. We know that multiple things have to be true to help kids like me, you know, who grew up in extreme poverty, be successful. We also know that top-down change doesn't do it alone. So just passing, you know, the right policies and having decision makers and influencers involved, that's helpful, don't get me wrong, but that often doesn't sustain. 
And then we know community matters, the voice of community, the engagement, the empowerment of community members, that also matters. So that grassroots effort, it also is important. It often doesn't scale, right? Because it doesn't have the right you know, systems and resources. So we think that top down, bottom up, working in tandem with one another, with you know, good people, practitioners that, have, that are in the work, that's how you actually get to meaningful change. And then the only other thing I would say is we're also clear at TNTP, we should not and cannot do it alone. There's this you know, false fallacy that, and it's, it's sort of perverse, it's driven in large part by us and by funders where, oh, find the one thing, we're gonna fund you, and you prove that that one thing is the thing, right? That's perverse. We know that no no one silver bullet works, and so at TNTP, you know, we're so grateful for all of our funders. But we also know that we partner with other organizations who are smarter in some areas than we are, and that's how it should be. And so we don't need to start from zero on every single thing. We should collaborate with the right organizations, right partnerships, and do that work in proximity and with community. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, I think someone mentioned the other day, we have to respect the gravity of the problem and not assume that, you know, we can fix it in a year or two or with a silver bullet. And so respecting it um, is, is incredibly important. So I'm glad you said that. Um, so what is your advice to school leaders um, intent, or in, intent on ensuring their teachers are prepared for the future of learning? So we, Talk to, the, talk to the school leaders who, are, who have these educators in their building who are saying, you know, I want to be prepared, not just for what my students need now, but for the future. What's your advice to those school leaders? I think a couple things I would say, the first of which is we can look both, I would say, in the past and in the future to give us glimpses on what should, we should be focused on now. If you look back in our, in our country, when, when I think about what you heard Secretary Cardona talk about today, these multiple pathways to success, and our efforts as a country to get rid of you know, the tracking, the racist legacy with you know, the, our you know, vocational programming and CTE programming, that's when we shifted to this college and career readiness. Well, what we did was we, I feel like we overcompensated for the root cause of the problem, which was you know, structural racism, bias, and, and the like. And so we created systems to say, okay, all kids on college and career readiness, we're not going to route kids toward vocations. And I'm not saying, oh, let's go back to that or let's bring CTE and, and only do that. But I am saying is that what it did was we cut off those multiple pathways the underlying root cause, which was low expectations, was still there, right? So that's present. In our research at TNTP, we published a report in 2018 called The Opportunity Myth. It showed overwhelmingly low expectations were present with, with adults, with teachers in schools. Now, to your point about how do we future-proof, right? Well, you look towards the future. Other industries outside of education are realizing that, oh, to train and have a viable workforce, we have to look towards the future. We know that climate change, technology, innovation, so that ability to adapt, those are going to be skills that all kids need now in order, whatever their industry, in order to be successful. So yes, there are specialized skills, of course, that some careers will require, but some of these skill, people refer to them as soft skills. They're not soft skills, right? That tech, technology, innovation, they're driving every sector. And so we need our kids to be able to 
be adept, right, in those skills in order to be successful in not only careers today, but in careers, you know, in 30 years that we don't even know what they are right now. Your school leaders are having to, to do two things at once, which is think about the future. Um, and we're talking 10, 20 years from now. But also think about the, um, the immediacy of this upcoming school year and the potential for um, this so-called exodus of teachers. Um, and I think it, you know, some people say maybe it's exaggerated. Some people say we're not really, uh, really understand the problem. And so I guess what are your thoughts on um, you know, the pipeline of new teachers coming in, given the stresses of, of the past couple years? What are your advice to school leaders in thinking about you know, the upcoming cohort of teachers? Yeah, so it's a great question. I have a couple of different thoughts on that. The first one is, so I actually led talent, and as I said, in Memphis for, for those years, and we were large district, we had about 8,000 teachers, and I said, this is not new. So, you know, I started leading that work, I don't know, in 2010. So the one thing, even though obviously COVID is, is making it much more pervasive, it is not a new problem. And so there are some best practices that are out there to help us think about how to broaden our pipeline and also how to retain teachers. Now, again, I don't want to underestimate the stressors and the what all the pandemic has brought, but there are some practices. We actually published a paper a couple weeks ago focused on exactly this, sort of talking about some of the things. It was basically our COVID-19 um, school staffing response toolkit. So it gives some very practical um, steps that school leaders and districts can do right now to help with everything from recruitment and retention. But it also talks about think forward, like down the road, some more sort of intractable problems that you should be focused on as well. Like even looking at the role of the teacher, like what should we be, how should we be thinking differently about what, uh, what is all included in the day job of a teacher? Now I get it, that's a longer, bigger problem to solve for. So in the immediacy, there are just some best practices that school leaders and that districts can be doing now to help with both the recruitment and the um, retention. One thing that I will highlight that's actually interesting is that when we, when we talk to districts about like where and how they recruit their teachers, th there's this fallacy that, oh, we're going to recruit teachers from another community and that's how we're going to solve our community's teacher shortage, where you're just really robbing Peter to pay Paul, right? Mm -hmm. And then it drives, th there's this notion for me when I think about the, the potential pool that's untapped, it's the very community members of our students. I grew up in the Bible Belt. My first teacher was my Sunday school teacher. Now that person, she wasn't a licensed teacher. Could she have been someone that with training and support become a great effective teacher? Yes, she looked like me. We know that teacher diversity matters. Kids do well, especially kids of color, when they have teachers that look like them. And we've untapped, we've, we've not tapped into the very community um, of our students as a potential pool that, yes, with training and support, can become teachers. Um, and they actually are more likely to stay than a teacher that, you know, sort of gets shell-shocked when they're placed, you know, in a struggling school in a high-poverty area. I would call that disruption, too. That's, that's, that's pretty disruptive in a, in a positive way. Um, I want to thank you for, for, for joining, joining me today. As we wrap, just, just one, one final question. And let's, let's think out a year from now. Um, what will we be talking about at South by Southwest next year? I think if we're doing our work right, we'll be talking about 
hopefully best practices and some innovations that we took from COVID and are playing it forward. For example, I'll give two quick examples. One, we know that during the pandemic, lots of states looked at waivers to get teachers into the classroom, right? While everything was shut down, you couldn't test. The research has actually shown there are some barriers to entry into the teaching profession that actually don't even correlate to a teacher being more effective, but they keep teachers of color from getting into the profession. So hopefully we'll have even more data to push us to think about, okay, those waivers, should they stay in place, right? If they're if they're not, you know, translating to more effective teachers. The second thing that I hope we're talking about is as not only K-12 and in education is grappling with sort of the future of our country and the strength of our country and our economy and our workforce this great resignation and great reshuffling that's going on, we will talk about that in the context of not only how we utilize the, the lessons learned to help us you know, with the next generation and cohort of teachers, but more importantly, what are we learning to help us rethink how we even train and teach students within K-12 to make sure they have these multiple pathways to economic and social mobility and not wait until we fail them and then try to you know, retrain them as adults, but within K-12, what are we doing right then in that moment? No, that's a, that's a great place to end. Um, thank you so much for, for joining this edition of the RISE Report series of the Radically Pragmatic Podcast. Again, uh, I'm Curtis Valentine. I had the pleasure of being here with Tequila Brownie, the first African-American president of TNTP. Thank you so much for joining me today and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.